And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to penetrate our hearts this morning. We need to set aside the distractions of the weak and of the world and focus our hearts upon the one that we adore, the one who can bring healing to our hearts, the one who is more beautiful than all that we know. So speak to us through your word. May it live in our hearts today and conform us more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ephesians, as we've seen, is an epistle that teaches us about the church, the mysteries of this entity that Christians are a part of. Later in the letter, Paul is going to give us some analogies and compare the church to a body, a building, and the bride of Christ. There is glorious beauty and yet strange mystery in these analogies that the Lord will use to teach us about what it means to be part of this new community the church. But here at the outset, in the opening chapters, Paul has been laying down a foundation for us. He is teaching us not so much how we are to function as the church, but rather what does it mean to be the church. He is defining it for us. Over the past several weeks, we have seen in the first chapter that Paul has emphasized what God has done for us in Christ. In this description, our role has been one of really complete passiveness. So far, there is no two-way street in this relationship. As Paul said in chapter 1, he blessed us, he chose us, he predestined us. How and why? According to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. He redeems, he forgives, he makes known the mysteries of his will. He unites, he works all things. How and why? According to the counsel of his will and to the praise of his glory. Paul continues, he seals, he guarantees, he works his might. So far, there's been one actor in this drama, God alone. Even when Paul does refer to the Ephesians believing in the gospel and having faith in the Lord Jesus, he continues to make God the actor in that scenario, providing for that belief and faith. If we weren't careful, Paul might be giving us the impression that we haven't contributed to our being a part of this new community in any way. Of course, that is exactly what he is trying to do. 
and what he's been getting at. So after showing us the glory of God's complete and total sovereignty in our salvation, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains our role in the process. He contrasts being in Christ from chapter 1 with being in trespasses and sins here at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul uses a morbid yet descriptive metaphor that informs us what we contributed to the process of our salvation. He tells us that Christians, those who follow after Christ, those who are part of the new community, were once spiritually dead. After describing all the glorious benefits of being alive in Christ in chapter 1, Paul, as if to take a step backwards, reminds us of who we were before Christ saved us. Just in case we haven't fully grasped our desperate need, just in case we have a hard time accepting this idea that God, quote, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, just in case we're struggling to believe that, quote, he predestined us for adoption as sons. He explains, you were dead. Believers at one time were spiritually dead without Christ. He doesn't say that we were asleep or even in a coma, simply waiting for that inner spark of light to dawn on us so that we would wake from our slumber. He doesn't say that we were simply ignorant and that if we just heard the gospel, we would have the common sense to choose life rather than death. He tells us that all humanity outside of Christ is in the same predicament. We are we were all residents of the same graveyard that has a sign over its entrance saying, here lie the children of Adam and Eve, dead in trespasses and sins. Paul then immediately shows us in the first few verses the three effects of being spiritually dead. You have these in your outline. First, all of us walked in trespasses and sins. As humanity walks in this dead state, we are not, as we might think, free from the tyranny of a master acting according to our own will, for our will is enslaved to sin, which has mastery over us. We were following after the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. What irony that when outside of faith in Christ, many think that they are free, liberated, open-minded and enlightened, when in reality we were all part of the walking dead, following after our master, sin. Paul's first descriptor for this way of life is following the course of this world. Like a horse with blinders on, we only saw the path of the world before us. How depressing to think that outside of Christ, all one can see is the course laid out before them by the fallen world. To believe that this is all there is, that the unfulfilling pleasures and relationships of this world are the only reality, and yet there we all were, head down, focused on the next step on the stony pathway towards destruction, oblivious to the truth, goodness, and beauty all around us found in Christ alone. But we were dead. How could we see anything but the course of this world? Paul says also that in this dead state, we were following the prince of the power of the air. Well, if it couldn't get any worse, now we see that the ringmaster of this circus parade of death is none other than Satan himself. 
As we march on to the drum cadence of the fallen world, Satan dangles that carrot of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life right in front of us, ever convincing us of their power to satisfy that deep longing of our hearts. How can a dead person even know of the luxuries, pleasures, and wonders of being truly alive if all he can see are the trinkets of dust laid out before him by the great deceiver? The final description of walking in trespasses and sins is following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Far from being free thinkers, mavericks above the constraints of an overbearing God, humanity lumbers on down the road to destruction, yoked together like oxen with all the other sons of disobedience, marching under one flag, the flag of death. All of us walked in trespasses and sins. Next in verse 3, we see the second effect of being spiritually dead. All of us lived in the passions of our flesh. When visiting a third world country once, I was, as anyone would be, taken back by the immense poverty I saw and the conditions in which people lived. And I wondered, how can anyone in this day and age live like this? I was especially saddened for the children all around who had so little, and yet they seemed perfectly content in their squalor. A veteran missionary consoled me with the reminder that most of these children were still able to find some sense of happiness around them because this is all they knew. They didn't know at this young, tender age that things were any different anywhere else. And so it is with those walking in sin who live their lives with no thought of what God is passionate about. How could they? They're consumed with living out the passions of the flesh, oblivious to the possibility that there even is another way. Paul shows us the all-inclusiveness of this lifestyle in its two facets, carrying out the desires of the body and carrying out the desires of the mind. Not only does life outside of Christ involve that outward, obvious desires of the body and flesh that we're familiar with, but even our minds were clouded over and incapable of thinking God's thoughts. The third effect of our being spiritually dead, all of us were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just in case we still aren't getting his point, Paul seals the deal with this last descriptor. All of us were, by our very nature, born into a position of judgment under the wrath of God. We were not born, as some would propose, with a clean slate uh, before God that gets soiled along the way as we rack up sins to our account. Rather, because of original sin by our first parents, we all inherit this legacy. Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians, contrasting Adam and Christ, our respective representatives, when he says, For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam, as the first of all humans, represented us before God and failed, plunging all humanity into judgment. This is why we need a second representative, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect life on our behalf. Here Paul is teaching us what it means to be totally depraved. 
man in his natural state is completely incapable of righteousness. All mankind is completely depraved and as a result under the wrath of God. This is a fearful place to be indeed. Can we even begin to understand what it means to bear the weight of God's wrath? Sinclair Ferguson says, as Christians, we are comforted by the thought that if God is for us, who can be against us? But what if the reverse is the truth? What if God is not for us? What if God is against us? Then it matters little who is for us. We are in eternal danger. We don't like this, do we? I don't. It rubs us the wrong way. And this conversation will certainly not make you popular at dinner parties. You might not get invited back. But it is the truth that the Bible teaches. Recently, at the request of Ligonier Ministries, Lifeway Research conducted an extensive poll of some 3,000 Americans. And it had the express purpose of measuring Americans' theological understanding. The poll was directed at Americans in general, but it did include a variety of subgroups, one which identified themselves as evangelical Protestants. This would be the group that most of you would align yourselves with, and me as well. One proposition on the survey read this way. An individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. 71% of Americans agreed with that statement. That was not so surprising to me. But 54% of evangelical Protestants said that that statement was true. A second statement read, everyone sins at least a little, but most people are by nature good. 67% of Americans agreed with that. 44% of evangelical Protestants agreed with that statement. I guess they've never read Ephesians. Right here, the Apostle Paul counters that thinking. Everyone doesn't just sin a little and are by nature good. No, we are all by nature children of God's wrath. Almost half the folks sitting in churches every week that hold to the inerrancy of God's word, those who look back to the Reformation as their heritage, deny the doctrine of total depravity. This is problematic to a foundational understanding of what it means to be saved. John Calvin, in his commentary on these opening verses of chapter 2, says, A more severe condemnation of mankind could not have been pronounced. What does he leave us to when he declares us to be slaves of Satan and subject to his will so long as we live outside the kingdom of Christ? Oh, what a miserable and utterly hopeless state Paul has declared humanity is in. Dead in trespasses and sin. Dead people have no power at all to change their condition. They have nothing to contribute to their rescue. They cannot be coerced or cajoled into life. They cannot will themselves to breathe again. And remember Paul's words, among whom we all, including himself, the Apostle Paul, once lived. All of us were at one time spiritually dead without Christ, and there are no degrees of deadness. No one can say, you are more dead than I am. In this, our total depravity, humanity was on equal footing before a holy God, hopeless, dark, separated from the one who is life and love, dead. But here in the middle of this dark and terrible truth, 
we have these two small but earth-shattering words. But God. One of our elders told me recently that he had heard of a popular preacher and author within our circles proclaim these as being the two most important words in all of the Bible. But God. Walking the path to destruction, we could not change our direction, but God. Following after Satan, we were doomed, but God. Condemned children of wrath, but God. Like a bolt of lightning splitting the air and igniting our souls, but God. Like a mighty whirlwind sweeping in with the breath of life, but God. Like a tidal wave of love enfolding us into the kingdom of light, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This, (laughs) this folks, is the good news. Finally, after another long run-on sentence, Paul gets to the critical verb of action. God made us alive. Only the giver of life could call forth the dead out of the tomb. Only the creator could breathe into our nostrils the breath of spiritual life. Only the one who crushed death to death could display the might of his resurrection power. When Jesus stood before the tomb of his beloved friend Lazarus, he wept. Death had been victorious over his friend as it had been over all of humanity for all generations. But death's reign was limited. The conqueror had come, and in a few short days when Christ burst forth from the tomb, old death would meet its match. But here at the tomb of his friend, the conqueror of death would give us a small foretaste of what was to come. Jesus didn't wait to hear from Lazarus, for Lazarus couldn't speak. He and his family were completely helpless in this situation. There was nothing they could do to bring their loved one back to life. Only the voice of the one who holds the mystery of life in his hands could cry out in love, Lazarus, come out! And immediately, with no hesitation or negotiation, death relinquished its power over him, life entered his body again, and Lazarus was alive. But God. But God made us alive. God is in the business of calling a people for himself out of death into life. When he found you and me in our lifeless, helpless spiritual condition, he called out, even as he did to Lazarus, Mark, come out! And he made us alive together with Christ. No longer children of God's wrath, but children of that very God, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is by grace alone that we have been saved. Amen? And now, as if to counter the three effects of being spiritually dead, Paul lays out three glorious truths of being spiritually alive. First, we are now raised with Christ and have a new nature. Remember that in our former days, we were by nature children of wrath, but God has intervened with his resurrection power, and now we are not under his wrath, but raised with Christ, his son. We have a new nature. We are no longer under the representation of our father, Adam, but rather we are heirs to all the heavenly benefits of our brother, Christ. Oh, what a wonderful exchange is ours. 
Additionally, as those who are spiritually alive and joined with Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Before, we lived in the passions of our flesh, concerned only with the things of the fallen world. But now in Christ, we are seated with him, capable of being passionate about the things he is passionate about. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before. He is so heavenly-minded that he is no earthly good. You know what? I've never met that person. In fact, I believe we can't possibly be too heavenly-minded. And it's only then that we can indeed be any earthly good. Paul puts it this way to the Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul speaks of our being seated with Christ as though it has already happened. And yet we understand in our day-to-day lives that we're still here. F.F. Bruce in his commentary explains, it can best be understood as a statement of God's purpose for his people. A purpose purpose which is so sure of fulfillment that it can be spoken of as having already taken place. God's purpose in our lives is for us to be concerned with the things that he is concerned with. We are no longer part of the walking dead. We're alive with Christ. And in him, we are more alive than we could ever be without. For what purpose were we recipients of this unimaginable grace and love? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are clear about this. God is not building a church for the purpose of making humanity happy. He is building a church for his own pleasure and to bring glory to himself. And in seeing his glory displayed through the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, we will find our most complete satisfaction. John Piper famously puts it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is why the health and wealth prosperity gospel is so terrible. It isn't merely another way of viewing the truth of the gospel or a different interpretation. It's another gospel altogether, a false gospel. It's not about us. It's about him. We only will be completely satisfied when he is fully glorified. We are no longer to walk among the dead in trespasses and sins. We are now to walk in good works. See that in verses 8 through 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While good works could in no way save us, as Paul has stated, they are, however, what we were saved to. For we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. He has refashioned us from objects of death and wrath to instruments of holiness and good works. Perhaps for some, God is beginning his work of regenerating your heart even now. 
Maybe the gospel has gone from your head to your heart and God is transferring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, even as you sit under his word today. When God makes us alive with the resurrection power of Christ, Paul says in Romans that we must respond to the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess that Jesus is Lord today. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose again for your life and be saved. For the believer, the good works we have been called to do, God has prepared beforehand. Did you catch that? That we should walk in them. Are you worried about whether or not you're going to know God's path for your life? Why worry? God's got this. G. Campbell Morgan, in his sermon on this verse, said, I don't don't know about tomorrow. I'm not sure about the next half hour. Yet I am absolutely sure God is ahead of me, preparing the works in which he would have me walk, planning the little things of my life, arranging the infinite mosaic, putting simple words into such harmony that if I will but obey and follow him, his poem shall be heard in all this life of mine. And he has laid up for us in Christ Jesus resources equal to whatever he brings us to. Oh, what a calling is upon our lives brothers and sisters. And still, we are not yet free from the struggle, are we? We are constantly lured back to consider our former state of death. Why should such a state ever tempt us again after seeing the glorious light and love of Christ? I don't know. But it does. It testifies to the total depravity of our sin nature, which is such a battle for us. But we are not alone in this struggle. Christ is working in and through us, preparing the path ahead and providing strength and grace in the measure of our need. We're also part of something much bigger than ourselves, something that cannot fail and something that is assured of complete victory in Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ. Friday marked a very special occasion in the church calendar, Reformation Day, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, of the door of the church at Wittenberg, sparking the reformation of the Church of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, November the 1st, is known by many churches as All Saints Day, a day to focus on the universal and eternal nature of the church by remembering those who have gone before us and those around the world. And as has been mentioned already today, has been set aside as a day of prayer for the persecuted church all around the globe. This weekend then serves as a great reminder to us that we, the people of God, are not simply isolated pockets of believers. We are one with Christ and joined to him with all of our brothers and sisters for all time by grace through his resurrection power and have been saved unto good works. It's true that we who are in Christ are alive. We are no longer walking in trespasses and sins, but we do still live in the graveyard. 
pilgrims here awaiting our consummation. But not waiting idly, for we see the headstones of our neighbors, family, fellow students, and co-workers all around us. It is true that only the resurrection power of Christ can enliven their dead spirits. Only Christ can call them to life. But remarkably, he has appointed us as the means of them hearing his voice. I don't know why Jesus left such an important task in the hands of his followers, but he did. Our task is great, but our God is greater. May the Lord enable us, as he has for generations past, to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the spiritually dead around us. May he enable us to be faithful to our calling whatever obstacles may come our way. And may he find us busy with the work he called us to do until that day when the saints triumphant rise before the throne of Christ, singing the eternal alleluia to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our Father, our thanks is much too inadequate for what you have done for us. Our gratitude doesn't come close to measuring up to our being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yet we are eternally grateful. Lord, help us to live out lives that reflect that gratefulness. Help us to serve you, to be those that are consumed with your good works, those that are looking to please you and not to please the passions of our flesh and those around us. Help us in this, for we cannot do it alone. We need your enablement, we need your spirit, and we need one another. Thank you for the gift that is the church. May you be pleased to use this place as a beacon of hope, a beacon of life and light in a world of darkness. Hear our prayers, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.